Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I hope that you're loving the weather out there today. I am. I love the heat, so please don't complain. Plus 30, 35, 40, just keep it coming. I love it. Spent all day yesterday out in the backyard. Niverville peeps, how you guys doing? They obviously got hit with a serious storm uh, yesterday, trampolines ending up on roofs and other things. Just to let you know, we were texting and phoning people and making sure our people who are living out there were okay, and uh, they are. So, thinking about you, Niverville. I have some great news I want to share. Next Sunday, June 13th, we're tentatively having something exciting planned for all of us, and uh, we are planning to host Drive-In Church here in our parking lot. Yeah, people in the building here are already celebrating for all of June, for all of July, and all of August. So we have ourselves an FM transmitter. It's working well. We got a portable stage. We are in the process of putting all the details together, and we have created a website with all the details and, and what you, all the regulations that we have to follow. And so on Monday, you can go to soulsanctuary.ca forward slash outdoor, or we'll also have a link connected in the events page. And you can read about it there and see how we're doing it and pulling it all together. And so everything that we're going to be doing is in accordance to all the restrictions and regulations. And so the plan is, again, we live in a world that changes every two minutes, but the plan is, is that we will be doing church all summer long from the parking lot. And as things move along and the building opens up, we're going to take it and dedicate the building. So this gym in which I'm in will be dedicated to kids ministry so that they can maximize the amount of kids and they can have the run of the facility. So we as adults will stay outside. You can stay in your car with the air conditioning on. Eventually you'll be able to pull out your lawn chairs and sit beside your car. And, um, but again, as regulations uh, allow it. And we'll keep you up to date on all of that. Now remember, this is a work in progress. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to figure it out week by week. So we ask you to be patient with us. But I promise you it will be fun. Um, it's something different. It's something new. And as summer goes on and as the restrictions loosen, we actually have some special treats planned for everybody who attends. So I'm excited. I know my staff is excited. And if everything continues as planned, I hope to be speaking live from a stage in our parking lot next week. So watch your inbox. Watch our social media. And uh, for all those who uh, still prefer to be online, that component will not change. We'll still have our one-on-one gathering. <coughs> And uh, the life lesson will be the same. It will just be pre-recorded just for those of you who feel more comfortable from watching at home. So you're not going to really miss out um, in that way. So this is our last week in the series of the Minor Prophets. And some of you are probably like, I sure hope we do something a little bit more touchy-feely. Um, well, starting next week, we're actually diving into a new series called Summer Playlist. And we uh, will be looking at songs throughout the generations that have impacted many of us at some kind of level. Now, you're probably familiar with my take on God in the movies, but um, this is going to be more like God in the music, if I can put it that way. And we're going to take some time to look for God. We're going to look for truth and grace and meaning in music, uh, from The Who to Justin Bieber and everything in between. So you might be asking, well, why are you going to do this? Well, Marshall McLuhan. Uh, considered by many to be one of the top chief theorists um, of mass communications in our time. He probed and he predicted trends and his ideas stimulated thousands of artists, intellectuals, journalists throughout the world to continue to investigate the claims that he made. And McLuhan, this great Canadian, saw the powerful impact of technological change on the world and he showed us a new way to explain our world and society itself. Uh, he also contended that all media, in and of themselves, and regardless of the messages that they communicate, exert a compelling influence on people and society. So, today's uh, celebrities are serving as cultural prophets and religious philosophers of our day, and more often than not, some famous actor or musician can carry as much weight with the religious influence on the average person. And so next week, you know, I'm going to invite you to put on your seatbelts. I'm going to ask you to turn up the music and get ready for a ride. There we go. Now, turn to Malachi, the first Italian prophet. Now, of course, that's a dad joke, which never gets old in my opinion. 
In case you didn't know, it is pronounced Malachi, and he's Jewish, just saying, throwing it out there. So as a church, what we want to do is we want to respond to what God is teaching us. In my opinion, the messages given by all these minor prophets have been powerful. Remember, I said that reading them is like looking into the mirror and then asking, what do we see? And so the prophets have long been understood as champions of social justice. These prophets demonstrated broad social concerns, which are rooted in the person of God, who is committed to humanity, and he's deeply moved by injustice and the suffering that it causes. The minor prophets are saying to the people, God's protection is predicated on your keeping of the covenant between you and him. And again, I have to say, we have to remember that obedience is God's love language. And and part of the covenant is treating others well. If you're unjust, you break the covenant. And the covenant is not just about ritual, because what good is ritual, which is supposed to be directional towards the good? If, what good is it if one is evil towards one's fellow human beings? You know, we looked at Amos, if you remember. He communicated God's utter disdain for the hypocritical lives of, of his people. And if you remember, he wrote in chapter 5, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. If we're not compassionate and passionate about delivering people from oppression, then our religious experience, even if you are insanely religiously busy, is shallow. If our faith is not accompanied by compassion and generosity and a commitment to justice, then what is it? To perform rituals and then sin or commit crimes is an unbearable contradiction, hypocrisy. You know, we can read minor prophet after minor prophet and think that the constant calls to be ethical are just being monotonous and boring. But the truth is, people, (coughs) (coughs) the truth is, is that ethical behavior requires constant reminders and reinforcements. And so the prophets exhort the people to be charitable, to be merciful to the poor and to those, to to, to help those who are defenseless and needy, the widows, the orphans, the oppressed people, the strangers, and, and those who had no legal rights. They were to stipulate the the impartiality in justice and fairness. They were to insist on respecting the property of others. They were to uh, insist and demand respect for every human life. This past week, in light of the revelations of the Kamloops Residential School, 215 215 kids two hundred and fifteen young lives gone and probably more I was asked my thoughts on this new revelation and then with a heavy heart all I could think of at the moment is we weep with those who weep You know, we live in a country where over history, justice has often been perverted in favor of the rich. Where too often we've seen the underprivileged or the minorities oppressed and even at times treated like they were subhuman. Again, I think of how we treated First Nations people. I go back to the simple need of not providing clean water and reserves. The fact that they're treated differently before the judges or as we now see unmarked graves instead of playgrounds. 
alongside schools. You know, maybe we're not guilty of it ourselves, but the question we need to ask is, do we show empathy for those to whom it has happened to? And do we respond like we would if it was happening to our own kids? And I think one of the things that we need to understand is that a failure to show concern for the poor, the defenseless, the needy, the widows, the orphans, the oppressed people, the strangers, those without legal rights, shows a misunderstanding of a gospel. And I say it this way, a real Christian simply can't be passive about hunger and sickness, oppression, or injustice. And if you've never woken up to injustice, never been moved by compassion, if you are not generous, it then begs the question as to whether you've actually ever encountered the gospel if you identify as a believer or follower of Jesus. Those are harsh words, aren't they? Read Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says, I was, and you And he's not saying that the way to have a relationship with him is to do just these things. He's saying the way that you can tell that you have a real experience of grace is that when you see people in need, you pour your heart out to them. And so with that said, what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the book of Malachi. We're going to ask five simple questions. Who wrote the book? Where are we in history? Why is this book important? What's the main message? And how do I apply it to my life? And what we need to know is that Malachi is not only the last book in the Old Testament. It is also the last thing that God said to Israel for 400 years. Those 400 years between Malachi and the book of Matthew is what historians call the silent years. Historically, there was a long time. When no voice spoke for God, no prophet came calling on Israel, there were no scriptures being written, there was no encouragement for God, it was silent, the heavens were silent, but history was still going on, and remarkable things were still taking place in Israel and amongst the Jews. The next time God speaks is when Jesus comes. So, what Malachi says in this book is going to be reverberate in the hearts of Israel for 400 years. This is what they're thinking about. These words from Malachi when Jesus shows up. So who wrote the book? Well, Malachi is the author of this book according to the first verse. And again, we come across another interesting meaning in his name. It means messenger, which points to his role as a prophet delivering God's message to God's people. Malachi offered no other identifying information about himself, but based on the content of the book, it's clear that he delivers his message of judgment to a Judean audience, so the southern part of Israel. He's familiar with worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. Here we know that the people of Judah had turned away from the true worship of the Lord, leaving themselves under judgment and in need of salvation. So where are we in history? Well, The historical setting becomes much clearer in Malachi 1.8. It says this, When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So what you don't see in your English translations, but it is there in the Hebrew, is that Malachi uses the Persian word for governor, indicating a time period probably between... 538 to 333 BC, when the Persian Empire ruled the Promised Land. So Malachi is writing about the corruption of the temple sacrifices, meaning that he likely delivered his message many years after the Israelites rebuilt the temple in 515 BC. So it was already taking place. And he has concerns. These concerns also mirror Nehemiah's concerns, suggesting that Malachi probably prophesied to the people while Nehemiah left the city for several years. So we're looking at about 432 B.C., approximately. So why is this book important? It's about 170 years since the Israelites had been exiled into captivity in Babylon. Why? Because of their sin. God had promised that this captivity wouldn't be permanent. And so after 70 years, he returned them to their home again in the promised land. Well, they did come back, right? They underwent a national revival, and we looked at some of that. And, and with all these reforms, they also had the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we haven't really touched on yet. 
And so within a generation, though, those promises of reform had worn off. Their hearts had gotten cold. But what didn't wear off, interestingly enough, was their external commitment to their religiosity. Historians say that Israel would never again lose that, not even today. They were so scarred by the exile. They were so scared that it would happen again that they permanently uh, became what we would call hyper-religious. This was a time when groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees began to form with all the emphasis on the external behaviors. These were the groups who caused Jesus so many problems, who he called whitewashed tombs, pretty much pretty on the outside, but full of dead dead man's bones on the inside. So Malachi is living and, and prophesying during the time that these groups are forming. And he brings up four accusations against the religiously active people who look great on the outside, but their hearts are pretty cold towards God on the inside. So what's the main message? The main message is, yes, God's judgment is indeed coming on his enemies, but God's people must be concerned about their own relationship with him than anybody else's fate. In other words, look at your own yard. Malachi 3.7 probably sums up the message of the whole book, if not the whole Old Testament itself. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statues. You have not kept them. So return to me and I'll return to you. (coughs) The temple had been rebuilt. The fervor of those early returning Israelites gave way to like an apathy, you know, for the things of God. This began to get cold. And that apathy for God then led to rampant corruption amongst the priesthood. And so now what we have is a problem in the priesthood, and that sort of filters down to a spiritual apathy, or uh, yeah, I would say a spiritual apathy amongst the people. And so Malachi came along at a time when the people were struggling to believe that God even loved them, and they vocalized that. He said, you know, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? He says that in the second verse. The people focused on their unfortunate circumstances. They refused to account for their own sinful deeds. And so God pointed the finger back at them. And through Malachi, God told the people where they had fallen short in their covenant with him. If they hoped to see changes, they needed to take some responsibility for their own actions and serve God. Serve them faithfully according to the promises their fathers made to God on Mount Sinai all those years before. We, you know, not just the Ten Commandments, but the law. And in Malachi, we read that these accusations of Israel had four components to them. Now, I need to give you a warning here. These might be a little painful because most of these accusations actually hit pretty close to home. And they can even be a little bit offensive. So maybe today... Somebody watching is going to be offended. And you might be offended because it's Malachi who gets up into your business. He gets personal. Actually, Malachi steps in those that's none of your business places. And here's what I mean. The first accusation was that the people were, basically they were religious, but they were self-seeking. So in the first chapter, Malachi addresses the fact that their worship is half-hearted. In verse 13, we read that instead of bringing healthy animals uh, for sacrifice, the people were bringing sick animals, right? Or, or possibly ones that they've even stolen from other people for sacrifices. It never cost them anything. So let me ask you, what does God get from you? Does he get your first and your best? Or does he get your leftovers? Does it cost you to be a believer? Does your giving to God inconvenience your lifestyle in all areas? C.S. Lewis said that one of the only ways to know your giving is where it should be is that it changes your lifestyle. And until it gets to that point, you're not giving in faith and you're certainly not giving in worship. Maybe some of us are feeling our toes being stepped on. And Don't just think about money. Even your career could be used for a strategic advancement of the gospel, where God placed you. 
our offerings toward God ought to make a statement about other people where other people, you know, begin to ask questions. You know, people should notice who is this God and why do you feel so strongly to serve him this way? In 2 Samuel, we read about uh, uh, the king replying to Aruna. He says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. It's not about fulfilling a need. It's about making a statement to God. So they were religious people. This is who Malachi is talking to, but they were self-seeking rather than God-honoring. Remember, it's a mirror. Secondly, they were religious, but they were also very self-centered. And according to Malachi, this was demonstrated in their behavior when it comes to marriage. Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 12 or 13, says, Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offsprings or accept them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So here's what's happening. If you read back a few verses earlier in chapter 2, you'll see that many of the Jewish men had taken a fancy for foreign women, found them attractive. These women worshipped other gods. And so what these Jewish men were doing against the commandment of God was that they began to marry these women instead of the godly Hebrew women that they were commanded to. Some of these guys were even divorcing their wives to marry these other women. And so God, what he does is he confronts them in two ways. First, he says, your marriage was a covenant that you made before me. It was supposed to reflect my love. That's what marriage is. Second, he says, one of the primary intentions of your marriage was to raise up godly children. But you, basically, he says, you started to look at marriage as if it is all about you. You're looking at marriage as if it's all about your wants and your desires. And divorce is often the result of a life or lives that have completely turned in the wrong direction. Divorce is not usually the problem, but it's the fruit of a, the problem. And that is a life that is self-centered. The problem is that people go into marriage looking for somebody to complete them or to make them happy. And when that person quits doing that or it gets difficult to live with them or they meet someone they might think might do it better for them, what happens? They get divorced. Their self-centered approach to marriage even affects the way that they think about children. And again, this is not me speaking. This is what, what's being said here. They, they think of it in terms of what they want, of, you know, of, of what will add enjoyment of their lives. And one, one of God's primary purposes for family is children. We see that. And he gives children for the purpose of the kingdom. And one of God's purposes in marriage is to raise up a godly generation of people. Now, I need to be very careful here. Because I don't want to imply that the number of kids you have is any way a measure of your spirituality, please. Because there's so many different and valid reasons why you choose to have a small or a large family or even no children at all. But I will say, generally speaking, as society gets more self-centered, they tend to have less children. And that's happening big time in our culture. Why? Because according to some, kids are inconvenient. They mess up your life. You know, maybe instead of addressing your children by the name that you have given them, you can call them uh, Hawaii Vacation or Lake of the Woods Cottage, right? Because that's how much they cost each year <laughs> to maintain them. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what is our motive for having kids? Is it to accessorize and to add value to life, or is it about God's kingdom? How do you determine the number of kids that you should have? 
You know, there are lots of questions out there, but the point is even marriage and family are not about us. They're actually about God, and this is what Malachi is saying. But when is it about you? And when it is about you, divorce becomes a lot more common, and kids become a preference, and usually suffer the most. When I know that my marriage is about God, I'll stick it out in the hard times because I know God's name. Not my needs. God's name is the ultimate thing of importance here. And I know that God can bring himself glory in my marriage by giving me a peaceful, harmonious relationship. But he can also bring glory to himself by enabling me to love someone with grace even when she's difficult. That's a joke. Don't kill me when I get home. Because we have to remember that's how God loves me and you. And so just as in Malachi's day, we have a divorce problem in the religious community. We have a divorce problem in the church. And it's, in by, it, it, it's by and large because we have adapted a self-centered rather than a God-centered approach to life. Some couples get divorced because they no longer love each other, right? Oh, we realize we've never really loved each other. That's actually, that kind of love is a choice. And what you're saying is that you encountered things that made these people difficult to love. Let me ask you this question. Do you think you are easy for God to love? That's an amen or ouch statement there. God says in Malachi, he hates divorce because it tells the world a lie about his love. When we divorce because we are no longer getting along or, or you are no longer making me happy, we tell the world that God's love is like that. Because marriage is this picture of God's relationship with us. Marriage is supposed to be an earthly picture of God's love. We become one, one, like he is one. Ahad is the Hebrew word. It's tough. It's so tough. Some couples get divorced because of irreconcilable differences. Can I say that Sharon and I have all kinds of irreconcilable differences? We all do. You just pick the hill you're going to die on. And for me, squeezing the toothpaste in the middle of the tube is not one of those hills I'm prepared to die on. But it's no different than Jesus having issues with me personally. But Jesus loved me anyway, and through his persistent grace, he changes my heart and now I get a chance to demonstrate that in a marriage. And couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. That's really what happens. They don't, you know, falter in their passion for each other. They falter in their worship of God. Somehow God gets second rate here. And divorce is not usually caused by some difficulties in the marriages as much as it is a self-centered rather than God-centered view of life. Now again, there's a whole lot that I can go on from there and you can say, what if I'm just telling you what Malachi has said? Thirdly, they were religious but unbelieving. So in chapter two and three, we see the Israelites complaining by asking, where is this God of justice? Or they're saying it is futile to serve God when the arrogant are blessed and the evildoers prosper. Sounds familiar? And so after all God, you know, after all God had done for them, they were still looking around the world. And they're still looking and saying, hey God, it's not fair. God, how do we know that you really love us? Hey God, are you even up there? And keep in mind, God had delivered them what, from self-inflicted captivity. He set them free again. And he says, you still doubt my commitment to you. What more do I have to do? I delivered you from Pharaoh's army. Do you remember that? Without a single casualty on your side. I led you through the wilderness by a cloud and I gave you miraculous provisions of food and clothing. I defeated the enemies much greater than your size right in front of you. 
I explained to you that my ways were not your ways, but you could always trust the way that I was working, even when you couldn't see what I was doing. But you still say, well, maybe you're not good. Maybe you're not even there. I, you know, I often say it's okay to ask questions, and it is. As a matter of fact, uh, this week I got a phone call. One of my sons wanted me to talk to their friend. He had questions about the scriptures. I, I applauded him for that. But a persistent failure to trust God when we look at what Malachi is saying here, tires God out. Questions are okay. Questions are good. Sometimes questions are necessary. But there comes a point in which the doubting has to stop and not trusting God becomes an insult to him. Somebody once said, in light of the cross, the greatest insult you can give to God is to doubt his love for you. Maybe your doubt never drives you all the way to unbelief, but your second guessing of God dulls our joy and it mutes our worship. You know, I've experienced moments just in my own life where I find it hard to release myself to God fully in worship. I'm sure we all do. Or maybe those moments where we find it very difficult to witness for him with passion, right? And, and a lot of times it's, it's, it's because I can't understand why God would do or not do something a certain way, the way that I think that he should do it, the way that I prescribe God to work. But at the same time, I've also had those moments where I've heard God speak to me in my heart saying, Jerry, do you remember that dark valley so many months or years ago? Do you remember how I brought you through it? Or how I answered this prayer, or Jerry, how I answered that prayer. Like, how could you possibly doubt me? Finally, they were religious but untrusting. Now, before I go any further, remember we're looking at a mirror. So let's pick it up in chapter 3. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Oh, I've been waiting to get to this one. This is so fun. And that's my sarcasm coming through this morning. But this is the beauty of picking a book of the Bible and walking through it because you actually have to address it. This is actually one of the most clearest explanations in Scripture of how God feels uh, about what Christians call the tithe. That first 10% that God gives you is what we are to give back to him. When we look at Scripture, we see that God had established a pattern of giving. He's already done that, right? 10% of their income was to go directly to support the temple and the temple workers. That's what the tithe literally means, 10%. But in actuality, if we were to go back and add up all that the Israelites were instructed to give, it would be actually about 33%. And the bottom line is 10% went directly to the work of the Lord to pay for the operations of the temple and the public worship. Just saying. And tithes were one thing, but offerings were another. Offerings were gifts for special projects like the building of the temple or feeding the hungry. And, uh, you know, if they withheld these things from God because they were afraid to actually give and also because they prioritize other things. And what does God do? He says to them, you're robbing me. Now people said, wait, 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 God, we're not robbing you. Nobody broke into the temple, stole your candlesticks. We didn't take anything from you, God. What are you talking about? But God reminds them. He says that everything they have is ultimately from him. And when he gives it to you, he says, remember, his love language is obedience. I want you to give me back 10% on everything I give you. And clearly, God doesn't ask for it because he needs it. He has storehouses in heaven, and he actually wants to use those to meet your needs. But he commands us to give it as a way of declaring our trust in him. Obedience. His love language. And you can see here in this passage that God takes it very seriously. And he says, you, you know, 
when you don't do it, it's like breaking into his house and robbing him. And by the way, I'm not bringing this up because we have financial needs here in the church or that we're going to do a special offering when I'm done here. I'm bringing this up because it's in the Bible and it would be unfaithful for me not to bring it up. Because God brings it up and it's actually a barometer of our hearts. Listen. The way I look at it is everybody ties to something. Everybody tithes to something. Something gets your first and best. And it's usually whatever gives you the most meaning or provides the greatest security in your life. That's what you give to. So what do you do first with your money? For some, the first thing to do is they provide for themselves some creature comforts, right? And that's because you think that what brings happiness in life is some sort of improved material station, if I can say it that way. For others, you maybe save. And that's because you're, you're really not sure of what might happen in the future, and extra money provides for you that extra security. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with upgrading your lifestyle or saving with the future. I don't have a problem with that at all. The problem that God is saying is when you do these things first. See here, what we see very clearly that God's people, the first thing they did was tie it to God. Why? Because it is he who is supposed to be their joy and security. You know, and again, I can hear people screaming on the other end of the, (laughs) whatever you're watching. It's coming through the cameras loud and clear. The tithe. The tithe is the Old Testament law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. You are exactly right. We are not under the law. We are under Christ and we are freed from the law. But there are several things here we need to understand. Just because we're not under the law doesn't mean it's not a guide for us. It's kind of like saying that, say I'm free in Christ. I can now murder and steal. God doesn't change. His plans don't change. Throughout all the Bible, not just in the law, the tithe is what God's people give to God's work. As a matter of fact, Abraham tithed before the law was even given. Moses taught it. Jesus goes on and commends it in Matthew 23, 23. Plus, giving in the Bible is always supposed to be in response to what God has done for you. Of course, you may be thinking, well, I tithe my time. Great. You should. But that doesn't excuse you also tithing your income. Try reasoning that with Revenue Canada. Mr. Prime Minister, I'm not paying taxes on my income, but I did try to spend 30% of my time being really nice to people. Listen, we can't section off parts of our life and obey God in some areas and not in others. Again, everybody ties to something. What do you tithe to? What gets the first and best of your paycheck? I told you we're going to be stepping on feet. God says, when you take what belongs to me, your first and your best, you're robbing me. And then he says, I'm not going to be robbed. Failing to give me your first and best puts you under a curse. That's what he's actually saying, which is an ouch. In my notes, I have ouch. On the other hand, when you put God first, he says he'll multiply it. And then what does God do? He says, test me. Test me. And actually, this is one of the few places in Scripture where God says that. Chapter 4 closes with the solution, and I'm pretty sure you're happy I'm changing tunes right now. But in chapter 4, verses 1, we pick it up. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like a well-fed calf. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds very happy. Now what we know is that the human race has a dilemma. We know that. We want God to deliver us from evil, but the evil we want him to deliver us from is also inside of us when you think about it. 
If we prayed, God, remove all the evil tonight at midnight, my question is, who's going to be left around at 12.01? You know, we want to go to heaven with no more tears, right? But how many times have I caused tears? And we also believe that God should be a God of justice. You know, we don't want an unjust God. And we know it. The Bible says God's glory matters. Justice matters. The problem is we want a just God, but if God applies his justice to us, think about it, we're toast. Am I right? And finally, no matter how much we resolve to to do better, it never lasts. This is why we're reading Malachi. This is why we went through the minor prophets. Because you and I, we keep forgetting. And God shows up in his word to continually remind us. Remind us. Remind us. And then 400 years after Malachi, Jesus steps onto the scene of history. And he picks right up. Where Malachi left off, his first message was, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And then he went around reversing the curse that sort of Malachi ended with in the Old Testament. And what does Jesus do? He begins to heal diseases, he calms the storms, he casts out demons, he raised the dead. And, he, and the reason he could do that was because he absorbed that curse, right? He took the furnace of God's wrath so that he could be the healing son of righteousness to us. So now, you have to choose what the Messiah will be to you. In that passage we just read, furnace or sun? In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we read, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Remember, this is God's talking. This is... Who's, who's this messenger that he's talking about? Well, it's actually a prophecy about John the Baptist. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger, Jesus of the covenant whom you desire, will come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit at a refiner, a purifier of silver. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. In other words, what he's saying is that our hearts will again be in a condition where we want to please God. Jesus shows up, and he begins to purify. The Messiah will either destroy or purify. He'll either be the furnace or the sun. That's what Malachi is talking about. But we get to choose which one we want to be a part of. Repentance is when we separate ourselves from our sin and we say, God, I hate this. Will you help me destroy it? God, I just need to be honest with you. I need forgiveness. But rebellion, on the other hand, is when we say, no, I'm going to hold on to this. And what we see in these verses show us what God is actually doing in our life after we we repent. This aspect of refining. Refining is when they bring that metal to the boil. You see that on TikTok. Um, At least on my feed you do. Where they they boil this stuff over so that the refiner can skim off the impurities which float to the surface. Because why? The impurities are lighter. And then all that is left is either pure silver or gold. And that's what God does. Sometimes he lets life boil for you and me until our false confidences, until our false gods have risen and evaporated so that his spirit can rise in you with healings in his rays. The classic example is Peter. Remember, he promised Jesus I'd never deny him. And then what does he do? He does it three times in one night. It's the same old problem. We have these big promises, but no execution. But this same Peter will then stand before a crowd in Acts chapter 2 and he boldly preaches that Jesus you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. And Peter would never again deny Jesus. He was faithful to Jesus until his death. And in order to put that kind of strength in him, he had to assure Peter of his never failing love. He had to put his spirit into him. But before he could do that, he had to boil out the impurities, the impurity of self-confidence, which was painful for Peter. And it's painful for you and I. 
And maybe, just maybe, as you listen this morning, maybe that's what God is doing in your life right now. And maybe that's some of the pain that you're going through, but he's trying to get your attention. And that's really, he wants to put his power, his spirit into your life. But you got to release some of those impurities. So how do I apply it to my life? I think throughout Israel's history, the nation failed and fell away from God. And yet God, in his love and faithfulness, continued to call people back to himself. And each time Israel would fail, it prompted this cycle to begin again and again. And God's final word of the Old Testament, it concerns judgment for sin and testifies to our inability to love him without the help of his grace. We need his help. And he's constantly reminding us. And so do you struggle to follow God consistently? I get an amen, right? Malachi's call prompts us to live faithfully before God and offers hope that God is not yet through with extending mercy to his people, extending mercy to you and I. And I need to say this, that in this series of the Minor Prophets, it's clearly pointed us to to a Savior who would come, that Messiah who comes 400 years at the end of the Old Testament in Jesus. But the fact remains that you and I still have to choose whether we're going to receive him, right, as that son of righteousness or face him as that furnace of judgment, which Malachi talked about. And we can talk to you about maybe you're, you're struggling on your own and, and we can talk to you about how you know that you're on the right side of Jesus today and simply just contact the number of the screen and the person on the other line will gladly just walk it through with you and talk it through with you. Secondly, the minor prophets have really showed us that in every area of our lives we desperately need something beyond ourselves and our own strength. Many people, and I mean Christians, are stuck in the concept of religious rituals and empty promises, and it's time for us to get into the healing power of the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. I honestly believe that we all need a refreshing experience with the Holy Spirit. And when we are obedient to His voice, He will release you and I from the powerless shackles of empty religion and put you in the power of new life and joy. What a message we need to hear right now, especially here in Manitoba. Remember, religion puts you in chains. The son of righteousness, that is Jesus, he sets us free. And as I look at the minor prophets, they have shown me how willing God is to pour out his blessing and power. And if we just do what? If we just return to him, right? With all our heart, if we just cry out to him for his help, And that's what I want to end on today. I want us to end in a posture of repentance and desperation. Will you join me? I was doing some research through my computer. And I stumbled across a poem one of my sons wrote, Joshua. And he entitled this poem, A Spiritual Struggle. Fifteen years ago, he wrote this. And so I'd like to read this before we close in prayer. And again, remember, this is coming from the mouth of a teenager at the time. Here I am, stuck in the middle, helpless. I have to choose, but which one? One promises life, one promises fun. How do I choose which one? I like the sound of fun, naturally, so I tried it. It was fun, easy and exciting. I liked it then, but I hate it now. How do I choose which one? I didn't like my last decision. I lived it so long. I refuse to be like this. I've seen better way. I need to choose which one. I want that one, the Lord. 
I get down on my knees and I start to talk to him. Some call you father. Maybe you can set me free. I've been so troubled and you've still done so much for me. I've been, I've been in this dark room for so long, not letting myself out. Trapped now, I can't get out. I cry out silently, I'm worthless. I see outside these bars, the light promises so much, but I can, but can I trust it? Am I stuck here forever? No, I chose not to. I beg you, God, set me free. I choose you. I've chosen right. Now the doors have opened. I choose him. Now I will know what it means to live for someone else, to give up myself. Things will change and times will get kind of strange. Still, your love remains the same. I choose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder of the evil of being mechanical about our faith, of being shoddy and hypocritical and even bored with our faith. Lord, help us to know that your heart is a heart of love that is never content until it obtains a response of love from us. And sometimes, God, a careless word from our mouths can ruin somebody's day. It can throw mud on a reputation and turn harmony into chaos. Lord, help us think before we speak. And God, make us the kind of people who understand the power of words. Give us hearts of love so that we may reflect to the world what is inside us and that it's you. God, we can't stick a cup into a pool of mud and come up with clear water. So make us clean on the inside, God, so that when we tell the world about your love, that they won't run away. Make us worthy. Sit beside us, wrap your arms around us, show us the way. Create clean hearts in us, God, and as your children, we will honor you. And may we speak, Lord, for your justice. May we love impurity, may we love joy in joy and in sincerity. And remember that your name is our adequate resource in every situation. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Next week, all intents and purposes, we're going to be in the parking lot. I hope to see you there if you can. If not, we'll see you online as well. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. Here it is. May the all-powerful God, soul sanctuary, the one who created all things, and especially you, May he give you a generous attitude in all things. May you be inspired to give of your money, your time, your influence, and especially of your compassion. Compassion in such an overflowing way that people know it's all because of him. And may God reach out to you and may he nourish you. May Christ Jesus renew you in the image of the creator and may the Holy Spirit lead you with kindness and love. Now go in peace and live the church and we'll see you next week. Be blessed.